So, I am really excited about this morning's message and topic because it is so intensely practical. The first century church was dealing with the same things that we deal with today. Who'd have thought? And one of those things is how we, as Christians, view each other, which largely determines how we treat each other, right? We live in a world that increasingly focuses on externals, right? We focus on differences, differences in ethnicity, gender, education, privilege, socioeconomic status. And, you know, Jesus, he understood firsthand many of those differences and the pain that they can cause. I mean, just think about it. He carried with him the shameful, though unwarranted, stigma of an illegitimate birth. He grew up as a member of a marginalized and oppressed ethnic group. In his life, he accumulated no property or possessions except the clothes on his back. And he had no stately form, the Bible says in Isaiah, no appearance that anyone would be attracted to him. Nevertheless, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, they didn't seem to focus on people's differences. They focused on the far weightier things that we humans all have in common. So I want you to think about something that's pretty amazing given our culture today. Jesus did not vilify the oppressive Romans who hated them because they were Jews. He didn't ostracize the religiously compromised Samaritans like most of the Jews did. And he didn't disdain the pagan Gentiles like most of his countrymen did. Well, today, the the topic of race and racial conflict is an ever-present concept that has become to many the root of all evil. But it is not rooted in a biblical worldview. What do I mean by that? Well, Acts 17, verse 26 says this. From one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So this is a physical reality. All humans are descended from the same person, Adam. So technically, there is only one family line, and there is only one race, the human race. So if we want to think and speak biblically, then we should use the terms that the Bible uses. And it uses the word nations. Nations or ethne to describe people's unique physical, cultural, and geographic ties. It's where we get the word ethnicities. That's the term that the Bible uses. Now, the term race is really an unbiblical social construct. I didn't know this, but it didn't even, that word didn't even come into use until the, the 16th or 17th century. Prior to that, people were grouped according to their familial clan or their language. 
It was only with the spread of colonialism that people began grouping others by their physical characteristics. These unbiblical categories provided a method for dividing humanity and allowed the ruling or the conquering people groups to subdue and abuse the others. And so as people moved farther and farther away from God and a biblical worldview, they became more and more prone to seeking power and control over one another. And society, which should have been characterized by generosity and compassion, service, and unity, is now really just one big selfish socioeconomic class struggle. This is how race became the false foundation for what we often hear about group pride and for hatred of other groups. You see, what people call racism today, the Bible just calls it sin. Sin that needs to be repented of, just like any other sin. In today's passage, James addresses the distinction and discrimination that was being made by believers in Christ toward poor people who came into their congregations. But his instruction can be applied really to any differences that we encounter. How we view each other and how we treat each other is of preeminent concern to our Lord because we represent him. We represent him. We forget that, don't we? My goal this morning is to address the topic of partiality. And I think it's important to admit before we even begin that we are all partial in various ways and to various degrees. For example, on any given Sunday morning, just like this one, most of us, myself included, gravitate to our established friends. We prefer to engage with those who are most like us. We avoid the unfamiliar, and we can make judgments based on outward appearance. Maybe you avoid international folks due to a fear, you know, of the the language barrier. Maybe you avoid older or younger people because of the generation gap. You know, even Jesus' own disciples, they discriminated, at least at one point, against little children. They told him, these little children, go away, don't bother the teacher. Jesus rebuked them. They were discriminating. Now, I'm not saying that all of those things are necessarily sinful, but they are forms of partiality. This uncomfortability that we have toward those who are different. For example, I know that I would call them underprivileged people have left this church over the years because they felt out of place due to our relative affluence. Now, my realtor tells me that the average home price in Fort Collins today is over $614,000. It's crazy. But on the other hand, when I pastored our church in Greeley, we had a fairly blue-collar congregation, and guess what? a number of the wealthy people left that church because they felt uncomfortable there and they felt out of place. This is not God's design or desire 
for his church. The church has always been a very mixed bag. I mean, look around you. We are a mixed bag of very diverse people, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing. God wants it that way because it showcases the very nature of God, which is unity in diversity. So how about we pray before we get started? We'll dive into James chapter 2. Dear Father, we pray this morning that you would open up to us just a little bit more of the unfathomable riches of Christ. Just thinking of that song that we sang, Lord, I surrender. I surrender. I want to know you more. That's our prayer this morning, God. We want to know you more. We want to have a posture of surrender to where you can make us into the people you want us to be. Make us the kind of church you want us to be, welcoming. Lord, I believe we're a friendly church, but we want to be even more so. We want to excel still more. So we pray as we open your word, you would uh, touch on areas of our own hearts and lives that uh, we can grow in. And we pray that you would be glorified in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, James chapter 2. We're going to jump right in here. It's on page 1011 in the Bibles in the pews there. Let's read together. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers. Has not God chosen the poor, those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you have been called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become transgressors of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, so what is partiality? You know, the New International Version of the Bible uses the word favoritism. Favoritism, which comes from a Greek word that literally means to receive the face. In other words, to make judgments about people based on external appearance. When we see a person's clothing or skin color or how they walk or how they talk, 
or their personal hygiene. We can blindly infer things about them which may or may not be true. It's impossible to not notice those things. But the inferences that we make can easily dictate how we treat each other, which can then lead to relational boundaries. Relational boundaries. And one of the greatest barriers in the first century church was the idea that Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus now shared the same status before God. Culturally, at that time, Jews referred to Gentiles as unclean and even as dogs. But when Christ came, his death broke down that barrier and dividing wall between them. As Paul writes in, second, in Ephesians 2.14, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, that is Jew and Gentile, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Similarly, he writes in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what is Paul saying in these verses? He's saying that when a Gentile or a non-Jew, such as a, a Greek, believes in Jesus and is baptized, that person becomes a child and heir of the Jewish patriarch Abraham. As Paul talks about in Romans 11, they are grafted in to the commonwealth of Israel with all of its privileges. In other words, in in simplest terms, they are now family, family. But listen carefully. The distinction between Jew and Gentile here is not abolished, just as the distinction between men and women in this verse is not abolished either. But in Christ Jesus, there is now no discrimination between them. That means that in God's kingdom, while Jews were still distinct from Gentiles, they were no longer preferred above them. Just like men were no longer preferred above women. And not only that, but many other class-related distinctions were forever done away with. You know, think, think of like the caste system in India. You've got all these levels, you know, from the, the uh, priestly class to the untouchables. Jesus' gospel abolishes all such things. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12.13, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, in the first century, up to two-thirds of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Two-thirds. And so we know that there were many slaves in the early church as well. And... The early church was repeatedly instructed to make no distinction in status between slave and master. Everyone sat together in the assembly as equals. Equals. This was utterly unprecedented and shockingly revolutionary. Slaves in the early church were even allowed to serve as elders. And unlike pagan gravestones, you know, in the cemetery, 
They always noted if the deceased was a slave or not, but not so among Christian graves. They did not make that distinction. According to Ignatius in the second century, church money was often used to buy the freedom of slaves. And some Christians even surrendered their own freedom in order to ransom and free other slaves. As a result of Paul's teaching, the equal status given to slaves in the church, this evil of mass slavery eventually died out in the Roman Empire. Praise God. Let's look at another similar verse, Colossians 3.11. Oops, back, here we go. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, I never knew who the Scythians were, but you know, the, the root word Sith certainly doesn't sound good. Of course, they had nothing to do with Star Wars, of course, but kind of like, kind of like the Sith in Star Wars, the Scythians were the lowest kind of barbarian. They were also often slaves. And there's archaeological evidence that some Scythians served as mercenaries in the Babylonian armies of Nebuchadnezzar when they attacked Jerusalem. So, What does that mean? That that means that the Scythians had a connotation of being Israel's enemies. And here, Paul is saying that even an enemy of Israel could become a welcome brother or sister in Christ. So in the early church, we see all these colossal differences. And and these differences are not only minimized, but but they're nullified. They're nullified. There was even a leveling of the playing field when it came to money and wealth. Now, it wasn't socialism or communism like we know it today, but there was more equity. Everyone was expected to work, but those with greater financial resources were regularly instructed to be generous and to be ready to share with those in need. But sadly... In the first seven verses of James 2, we discover that in some churches, some newcomers were being favored according to their apparent wealth. And the poor were not being treated with the same dignity and respect. So James gives seven reasons why Christians in these churches should stop being partial to the rich. Let's look at them. Number one, God chose the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Two, you dishonor the poor men when you show partiality. Three, the rich are the ones who oppress you, drag you into court, and blaspheme God. Four, the royal law says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Five, partiality is a sin. Six, obedience in some areas does not make up for disobedience in other areas. So you're not off the hook. Seven, you will be judged by the law of liberty which is that love one another as Christ has has loved you. And judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. So Paul addresses this favoritism by reminding us that God is not impressed by man's resume. He doesn't notice us based on our strength, our intelligence, our nobility, appearance, or wealth. And in 1 Corinthians 
1, 26 to 29, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. So if you're ever tempted to be proud or boastful, you know, just read this list. This is your resume. Now, God had an agenda in the kind of people he was going to call and choose. And his purpose was to bring to nothing all those traits that we humans take pride in. Now, we know that Romans 2.11 explicitly says that God shows no partiality. That's his character. So some of you might be thinking, well, isn't God being partial to the lowly and poor here? And the answer is no. He's not being partial because someone is lowly or poor. I mean, a, per, a poor person can still be very proud, and a rich person can be, you know, quite humble. But in general, the lowly and poor are more apt to be humble and teachable and willing to receive the gospel. Why? Well, because they're more aware of their need. And they have less reason to rely on their own wisdom and resources and salvation for salvation because they have none. So God is not partial to the poor because they're poor, as though he feels sorry for them. He chooses the lowly and the despised because they just tend to be more receptive to God's grace. Also, being poor does not always mean material poverty. Jesus said things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Being poor in spirit basically means that you are acutely aware of your own spiritual need. You're acutely aware of it, which is really a clear prerequisite for salvation. Well, just before this passage, it says God chose to make the gospel sound like foolishness to the Gentile and a stumbling block to the Jews. Why would he do that? Well, Paul answers that question there in uh, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's not being partial to the foolish or the weak or the lowly or the despised. It's merely eliminating any occasion for people to boast that they saved themselves or that they had some innate qualities or distinctives that somehow earned God's attention. God created a world where there is just great diversity in wealth and status and skin color and height and shape, mental faculties, physical abilities, gifting, preferences, vocation. God loves diversity. Anybody with eyes, you know, can see that. But when God looks at people, he doesn't focus on any of those qualities. What does he focus on? When the book of First, First Samuel, God was looking for the next king to replace King Saul. And he directed the prophet Samuel to David's family, where Samuel was very impressed by one of David's older brothers named Eliab. 
And referring to this older brother, God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, it's just human nature to make judgments based on outward appearance. It just is. But that's not how God sees. In other words, that's not what God values. God values the heart. And we, as adopted sons and daughters of God, are instructed to be imitators of God, like the Apostle Paul. Paul rubs shoulders with a lot of wealthy and influential people, but he never allowed himself to idolize them or kiss up to them or become enamored with them. In Galatians 2.6, he says, And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. To those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So apparently the rich and the famous were not the ones who typically supported Paul's ministry. Usually it was the people who could least afford it. So Paul was not a respecter of persons. Okay, so why is partiality so bad? Well, let's look at a few verses to help answer that. Proverbs 28, 21, to show partiality is not good. But for a piece of bread, a man will do wrong. Now, I remember as a kid, uh, my dad taking our family out to an Italian restaurant in Des Moines, Iowa. And it was, a, it was a very popular restaurant, and so it was always very busy. And at some point, my dad learned that if he slipped the host a $20 bill, he could get us moved up on the waiting list. And as, as a kid, I'm just kind of watching this. You see, the host was partial to people who were willing to bribe him. It wasn't good. Because for a piece of bread or a $20 bill, he was willing to do wrong. This is why the law of Moses explicitly forbade partiality. Deuteronomy 16, 19, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of righteousness. Leviticus 19.15 You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So as a judge, you know, it could be very tempting to be partial to a poor person because of their unfortunate lot in life or to defer to the wealthy because of positive assumptions about them. But the Bible says that for judges, both responses are wrong. It's, it's not being righteous. Now, now, if you're not a judge, then it's okay to show compassion to the poor, obviously. In fact, our standard of compassion that we're called to as Christians is extremely high. As it says in 1 John 316 to 18, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. 
All right, and finally, one more verse. One of the most solemn charges in the whole Bible was from Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.21. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So why is one of the weightiest, most solemn charges in the Bible on this particular subject? I think it's because partiality or favoritism, bias, prejudice, prejudging, it destroys unity, destroys it. It destroys the unity among believers that Christ worked so hard to purchase with his own blood. Whenever we create, you know, a pecking order, it is a denial of the cross. It's pretty serious. I'd like to imagine a person. They could be real or fictitious. A person who would represent the most different person from you that a person could possibly be. Different in appearance, culture, language, intellect, education, interests, finances, and so on. And that person just happens to be another Christian, another believer. Now, imagine another person who is virtually identical to you in all those areas, only they are not a believer. Which one of those two people do you think you would most naturally gravitate to? I think if most of us are honest, we would prefer the one most familiar and most like us. And I'd like to propose that What we share in common as believers far outweighs whatever superficial or circumstantial differences we may have. In other words, you have more in common substantively with a blind child living in one of the slums of India who knows Jesus than your identical twin sibling who doesn't. And again... The early church struggled with this concept just as much as we do today. But because of how how we view one another, it's just so important to the Lord. He cares deeply about it. And these authors worked hard to shepherd their churches in this area. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 Paul writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have, been, you have received. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So how do you live a life worthy of your calling? How can you be completely humble, gentle, patient, and loving toward people who are so different? And how... Do you maintain peace and unity in a radically diverse church? Well, you understand and focus on the incredibly weighty things that we all share in common. And Paul goes on to list no less than seven of those things. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Saints, 
Having these things in common blows every other difference that we may have out of the water. Rich or poor, slave or free, male or female, young or old, married or single, extrovert or introvert, American or foreigner, dog lover or cat lover, it is all irrelevant compared to these seven elements. Whoops. These seven elements of our common faith. It's irrelevant. These are what define us. These are what unite us. And these are what will cause the world to marvel. Marvel. Because despite the world's greatest efforts, it is more divided than ever before. In our passage in James today, God is asking something of us that is supernatural. And it's really the fruit of being able to see each other through God's eyes rather than our own. Band, you guys can come on up. I just want to end on this. Every human being who has ever been conceived has been created in the imago dei which is Latin for the image of God. From the most noble person to the most despicable person, from the wisest to the most foolish, and from the strongest Christian to the staunchest atheist. There is something in all those people that is of incredible value and unique privilege. And this is a powerful basis for treating everyone with the same dignity and respect. But how do you define the image of God? You know, when you ask many Christians that question, they often respond by describing it as intelligence, reasoning ability, emotions, free will, the ability to communicate with God, language ability, having a soul or spirit, a conscience, self-awareness. Now, these may be attributes that we share with God, but they are not the image of God. I repeat, they are not the image of God. If they were, then we should abandon the idea of the sanctity of human life in the womb. Because unborn babies do not possess many of these qualities, nor do people who are in a coma, you know, nor do some mentally impaired people. Obviously, we don't want to imply that these people somehow lack the image of God. And we know from Genesis that the image of God equally includes both men and women. It makes humankind distinct from plants and animals. It makes humankind like God in some way. And it is not incremental or partial, but is all or nothing. So what is it? Well, the image of God is not an ability that we have. It is a status. It's a status We are God's representatives on earth, his proxies to carry out his will. Every human, every human is 100% an imager. They're either a good imager or a poor imager, but we are all imagers. It's not what we do, it is who we are. This levels the playing field, both inside and outside the church. This is the status and value recognized and conveyed to every person, 
young and old, rich and poor, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Amen? And I just have one last scripture I'd like to share with you. Romans 15, 5 to 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And final question, in what manner has Jesus Christ welcomed you? I'd like you to answer out loud with a simple yes or no, okay? Has he welcomed you freely? Yes. Consistently? Yes. Wholeheartedly? Yes. Unashamedly? Impartially? Eternally? With open arms? Yes. That is to be our standard for how we welcome one another. Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray that would be true of us that we would see through the externals and we would see and value, appreciate each other's hearts, that we have all those seven things in common, even with the most diverse of us. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God and Father, and so on. We have so much in common with each other. Help us to see past the superficial and circumstantial differences and love each other by that standard. In Jesus' name, amen.